Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I am Clay Skipper, which is probably why you're thinking, that doesn't sound like Brad or Steve, because it's not. But fear not, both Brad and Steve are here. And because I would not want to deprive our Growth Equation community from the time-honored tradition of hearing Steve ask Brad how he's doing, I will now uh, kick it over to Steve Magnus. What's going on in your world, Steve? You know, I'm doing great. My newborn is napping. I've gotten a run in. The world is beautiful. So thanks for asking, Clay. I, I really appreciate that. She's well, not I a really... newborn anymore. You, you can't keep owning the newborn card. She's like four months now. I don't know when the transition is, Brad. It's new enough. It feels new enough. She's still She's not an sleeping. Infant. All these people are like, oh, you know, Steve's not responding to my emails because he has a newborn. And I'm like, no, he's not responding to your emails because he's Steve. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that going for years. I've got a newborn, never responding to anyone's that texts or emails. She's All graduating. Right, Brad, college. how are you besides complaining? Yeah, I, I am. I am doing well. Uh, I'm stoked to have Clay officially at the helm of the podcast. We've got some good topics lined up for today, uh, so I'm stoked to talk about them. Yeah, let's jump in. We uh, the first thing we're gonna talk about is something that came out in the running community over the weekend. So runners, you will be excited to hear this next bit, but um, hopefully our deadlifting fans will enjoy it as well too. But bear with me here on the pronunciation. The um, the current Olympic 1,500-meter champion, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Steve, am I getting that right? Ingebrigtsen. 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 Close. Not really. Not really close. Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Um, him and his brothers, who are also their middle distance runners, they're also very successful runners. They penned a letter over the weekend um, talking about their father, who is also their former coach. Um, his name is Yurt. Steve? C- close enough. I have no idea there, actually. Okay. We'll, we'll so his, his, his father, their father, Yurt, was their coach, and he stopped coaching them recently, and it was supposedly for medical reasons. But over the weekend, the brothers, the three brothers penned a letter saying that it was actually, there was a larger story there that he had been uh, physically abusive and violent. And, you know, it just brings up this question that you guys have talked about before and is something that is often talked about, I think, in elite sports, um, which is if you have really good talent, do you need sort of a domineering overbearing coach to bring it out? Right. The thing, I think the, the names that come up for me are like Richard Williams with Venus and Serena and Earl Woods with Tiger Woods. Right. And the question is always, if you have the talent, is it good enough to get you to the top or is there some sort of like coaching that you need to get it there, and would these people still be elite without that sort of domineering? And again, I want to be clear: like, we're not saying that that's the type of coaching we, in any way, condone. But it's just a question that always comes up, right? Like, would these people be as great as they are if they weren't pushed to maximize their talent in the way that they were? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in first and add a little context, and then answer your question. So I think on the Ingebrigtsen cases, to give listeners context, is like. Before we knew everything about, you know, the the letter and physical abuse, it was well known that their father, who also doubled as their coach, was like very controlling, you know, the aggressive type. And then also like had coached these these athletes since a very young age. So Jakob Ingerbritsen 
uh, who's Olympic champ, like he's only, gosh, maybe 20, 21 right now. And he's been world-class since the age of, I think, 16, um, which is mind-blowing and running. And he was training at a very high level even, even before that. So it very much is the Tiger Woods, the Serena Williams. And I think, you know, to answer your question, Clive, I think that at the elite of the elite, the world-class, the Olympic champions, the, the Serena Williams, the Tiger Woods that dominate everything, I think talent would find a way. I think we over-index on this, hey, you need this like early specialization. You need this, like e- even beyond this, this control to bring it out of you. And the reason I say that is, is first, because whenever I'd have the privilege of working with or training with or seeing someone who is at that level of talent, it's hard for the normal person to understand it. It's like freakish. Like the example I like to give is when I was in grad school, I trained with a runner named Alan Webb, who set the American record in the mile, running 346. Um, And the dude was just insane. Like, he could do just crazy stuff. And it was I was a 401 miler in high school, and I'm just sitting there, and my training partner in, in with Webb was a Olympic semifinalist in the 800, Moses Joseph, and we'd just sit there and watch him and be like, what in the world? Like, how did you pull this off? And, you know, in my own coaching, when I got to work with Sarah Hall or, you know, watch her husband, Ryan Hall, who are both are, again, some of the best at that time at various points, best marathoners in the world, like you could give them crazy stuff and they bounce back and be okay. And, 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 and the reason I say that is I think too often we assign with these elites of the elites, we assign importance to like the coach, the trainer, whatever have you. But I'm going to quote uh, a good friend of mine, Danny Mackey, who is the coach of a world champion. He coached world champion in the 1500, Josh Kerr, who out who outkicked Jakob Ingerbritz in this year. I remember a year or two, a couple years ago, Danny told me, you know, um, he coached Nick Simmons to make the world championship, not win it, but to make the world champion. And he said, you know, I coached Nick to make the world championship before me. He had Mark Rowland, who coached him to make a world championship. Before Mark Rowland, he had Frank Gagliano, who coached them to make a world championship. The secret isn't me, Mark, or Frank. It's the athlete. And I think to a degree, as long as you get good enough coaching, I'm not downplaying coaching, but enough support at some point, often much later than we realize, then I think the elite talent of the talent will find their way. I'd agree 100%. I think that um, maybe where I feel, not even I feel differently, to add more context, is you're talking a lot, Steve, about just like the raw goods, the biological and physiological material. Let's talk about the psychological material. So there's a body of research that talks about talent coming from trauma. And it essentially argues that individuals that have undergone what they perceive as some sort of trauma in their childhood develop like this inner mongrel or this chip on their shoulder or this rage to master, this desire to improve, to prove the person wrong or to somehow right their trauma. So it's almost like they throw themselves into becoming the best that they can be to numb the pain associated with whatever they experienced. What's interesting is how that research defines trauma is pretty subjective. 
So yes, it can be capital T trauma, such as a parent in jail or an abusive parent, but far more often, it's actually lowercase t trauma. So being the fifth out of uh, five siblings, so being the youngest sibling, or having parents that divorced, uh, which is still really hard, but not like an abusive parent, or getting cut from the high school varsity team as a freshman when you thought that you were going to make it. Adverse childhood events, physical abuse, rape, parent in prison, malnourishment, there is an inverse correlation with those events in becoming world-class at anything. Uh, So I do think that there can be this rage of master and there can be this chip on the shoulder, but the type of quote-unquote trauma it comes from is not on par with being violently abused by a parent. So if these allegations about the dad physically abusing them are true, uh, if anything, I'd say that these kids perform great in spite of that, not because of it. Now let's take away the physical abuse and just get to a parent that rides their kid really hard. I would again, go back to what Steve says, there are multiple ways to motivate someone. And that is one way. And if the kid has the goods, it's going to work. But it is a short-term motivation. To motivate someone out of fear or anger is always short-term. And in this case, seems like it worked for about 23 years. And now the kids don't talk to their dad and they're potentially going to court over these allegations. Uh, It was short-term. And I think that if their dad could have figured out a better way to get that talent out of them and to motivate them, uh, perhaps the outcome would be the same, if not even better, and they'd still be in relationship. And then the final thing I'd say is a parent, I just think that like, if my kid were to ever be that good at anything, I would not want to coach them. I just don't think it's healthy. Uh, I don't think that it makes for a healthy coaching relationship, and I don't think it makes for a healthy parenting relationship. Um, so I just think like, it's important to draw that boundary. And I know some people that will draw that boundary in middle school and say, I'm done coaching my kid in middle school because in middle school, like performance kind of starts to matter. And I just want to love my kid for who they are, not based on their performance. And there's all sorts of great data that shows if you want to develop a mentally healthy, resilient kid and have a good relationship with them, you want to love them simply for them being them, not related to any achievement. Whereas if you're a coach, it's impossible not to have feelings come out when there's certain achievements. Um, so that's where I stand on it. I think that they had the goods. I think that seems like what their dad did worked. I mean, they're, they're world champion athletes. Uh, but I think there are other roads to Rome that would have worked and led to a better outcome for the family. Yeah, I'd agree. And two things that I'd add on there is there's this wonderful research um, outside of sport that gets at that same talent needs trauma um, that's in precocious or gifted individuals and art and academics and stuff. And they call it having the rage to master. And one of the findings that they found is those who translated that precocious talent to like adult talent, essentially, had that rage rage to master, but it primarily came from like that intrinsic motivation. And they were able to keep that joy of that pursuit, the intrinsic versus falling a victim or, you know, having their motivation changed to like, it's all about the external, the extrinsic, the rewards, accolades, money, et cetera. And that's a really hard balance. And I think what we generally see, again, maybe not in this case, but often the case is when you have an overly controlling parent 
or even coach is that motivation shifts because you start doing it out of fear. You start showing up to do the workout because you're afraid your coach or dad will yell at us and you. And in the in the coaching world, there's all sorts of literature. I talked about this in Do Hard Things a little bit. Um, all sorts of literature of, of like that dictatorial authoritarian coach um, often backfiring over the long haul. Sometimes it can work in the short term. Um, what's reminded, the, the study that comes to mind of me is the study they did on uh, NBA coaches and players, and they classified coaches into basically, I like to call it like the Bobby Knight coach versus like the sane coach. And whenever uh, a player had like this Bobby Knight as coach, for the rest of their career, even if they moved teams, their performance metrics decreased a little bit. And then they had an increase in like aggressive or technical fouls for the rest of the career afterwards. So it does have like a negative effect if you tend to have that overly controlling authoritarian dictatorial type coach. Yeah. Which, which also, if you have, I think if you're motivated by that chip on the shoulder, then when you do, if you do achieve success, you're just never going to be content with it either, which we see in a lot of athletes. And, and I also feel like these coaches like Bobby Knight get a lot of the press because it's sort of like a more sexy story. I mean, sexy is not quite the right word, but I think like just a little bit more dramatic. And I actually brought this up, Steve, when I interviewed you for what, for GQ, I brought up the Bobby Knight thing. And I was like, yeah, but it kind of worked, right? Because he led the he led the Indiana team to an undefeated season. But you were like, yeah, but what about John Wooden? And it was like, oh yeah, I had completely thought of, completely skipped over another coach with a different approach that was more sustainable and achieved just the same level, even more a higher level of success. Um, but I guess one counterfactual, and of course, you can never. This is an impossible question to answer, but it did make me, as you guys are talking, it made me think. Okay, so if you took like my tennis coach growing up. And you gave you put Serena Venus Williams with Joe Schmo from down at the you know Fieldhouse in Connecticut four seasons where I trained to no success at all. Do they still end up becoming Serena and Venus, or are they successful in a different way? They're sort of like they do well on the tour, they win a few slams, but they're not Serena and Venus that we know now. I think it depends on the age, and it's an impossible question to answer. But I think. If Joe Schmo is coaching them from age 5 to 11 or 12, it probably doesn't matter because you're just developing general athleticism and learning to love the sport. Once you want to start developing specific skills and you're old enough to be able to develop those skills uh, in a methodical way, then I think that you need to be in the care of a good coach, but it doesn't need to be a great coach. Like I could coach Serena from 5 to 11 and she'd probably be fine. And maybe it's five to 10. I don't want to get negative comments from the tennis aficionados, but like they're kids. You just got to get them moving and loving the sport. But once skill development comes in, then, you know, my high school coach would have probably been fine for them because my high school coach knew a lot about tennis. Uh, so I, I just think that like we, we often overemphasize the role of the parent or the coach in youth development when that starts to matter later during skill acquisition. I'd, I'd agree 100%. And I think it varies on sport too. Like the skill-based sports, you probably need some s- decent like skill coach or a person who understands the skill of the sport a little bit earlier. But I'd still put it at for most skill sports like junior high. Um, 
for other sports, it's later. You know, the examples I like to give, again, in my world of track and field, you know, one of the best distance runners in history, uh, Paul Tergott, didn't get started until he was after high school and went on to, you know, have the world record in the marathon and Olympic silvers back-to-back in the 10K. Or the example that um, also from the sport of track and field that our good friend Dave Epstein used in his his books, The Sports Gene, is in a highly technical event, the high jump, Donald Thomas went from doing nothing to taking up the sport in his early 20s to being world champion, I believe, within a year or two. And the high jump is like super technical. Like it's not a straightforward like skill that we all understand. Um I don't think that applies to everything, but but I do think the bandwidth or leeway for getting to a good coach is a lot longer than we realize. And I would say, especially early on, the more important thing is like not if the coach knows the skills or not, but if like they uh, encourage and uh, and culture that kind of love of the pursuit, joy, activity. So that that athlete like gets hooked up and is, and wants to, you know, do it on and on his own essentially. And I would say the one last caveat on all this stuff is I think the common denominator, even if you read interviews from Tiger Woods and <coughs> other precocious athletes, is they all basically say, "No, no, like it was my choice. Like I was the one who was trying to drag people out to the uh, to the you know." golf course or what have you and and that's how it was when i was a you know not at their level but a really good teenage athlete is i trained a ton probably more than any rational coach would have me train but it was because like i was demanding to do it and i think that is like one of the key central pieces is like that people miss is that are you choosing to do it or is it the parent or coach like dictating and demanding and i would say 95% of the time if it is primarily the coach or parent dictating and demanding that's going to blow up in their face yeah the thing that jumps out to me is like mike might now that i'm thinking about it is michael jordan became michael jordan right like he he was always going to be michael jordan and it wasn't i mean he had great coaches i'm not denying that but like there was no earl woods figure there necessarily right so absolutely and i think there's great examples like and this is the thing we often forget the successes of individuals who just kind of come through and and do crazy stuff without the Earl Woods or Richard Williams or or whatever have you. And those just don't come to mind. But I would argue that, you know, the vast majority of stars, if you think about them, they probably didn't have that like crazy coach because we haven't heard of that coach who probably if they were crazy, they would have tried to make a name for themselves as the coach of, you know, X, Y, and Z superstar. Yeah. The only other thing I'd say, and and you get a figure like Bobby Knight, is it's the same reason that Donald Trump or Elon Musk or like name that person who is in all the headlines gets attention. You know, it's to to quote George Saunders, like if you're in a room and you're the one with the megaphone, then everyone looks at you. And Bobby Knight coached with a megaphone. Um, So of course, like people are going to pay attention to, to him. Uh, and he coached a lot of good teams, but like Steve said, you actually look at the data and it, it seems those teams were good in spite of him, not because of him. Yeah, it's odd. When you choke your players, they tend to have a, a, a desire not to play so hard for you eventually, I would imagine. 
<laughs> fear, fear is a great short-term motivator, but not a good long-term motivator. Yes. Uh, this segues nicely into one other current event sports thing I want to talk to you guys about, which is the WNBA Finals. So last week, the Las Vegas Aces defeated the New York Liberty. Um, and after the Aces won, one of their players, I can't remember who it was, I think maybe Sydney Colson, but she was on the podium for the trophy presentation and she was like, we did it. Nobody thought we could do it. And now granted, there's a little bit more context because they did, the Aces did have two of their starters injured. Um, but it reminded me of a moment after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl when someone of the Chiefs, I can't remember who it was. I want to say Travis Kelsey, but that might just be my like Taylor Swift uh, overloaded brain speaking. Someone from the Chiefs was like, no one thought we could do it. And in both the cases of the Las Vegas Aces and the Kansas City Chiefs, like they were the overwhelming betting favorite. They were the overall number one seed. Um, and it just goes back to this conversation on like having a chip on your shoulder, right? Like, do you guys feel like elite athletes need to feel like they have something to prove, even if it's like contrived or like it, it's something that's a little bit in their head or something they they proved way long ago? Like, can you be great if you don't have that? Like, I'm going to show you why you're wrong. Sen- sensation. So, so let me let me go real quick because I know Steve's going to have a lot to say about this, and I don't have as much. I think that the short answer is yes, you can be great without that. I think the longer answer is there's a lot of individual differences, and um, we just have different temperaments. And some people need to be angry to perform well. Some people perform really well under pressure. Some people need to be relaxed and in a place of joy. Uh, I also think another way to think about the nobody thought we could do it is there's the chip on the shoulder effect, which is the most salient, but it also removes a lot of pressure. Because if you are the odds-on favorite in the team that everyone thinks that's going to win, that's a ton of pressure. Because now the expectation is that you win. And if you don't live up to that expectation, you feel like crap. Whereas if you can turn that around and say, no one thought we're going to do it, it removes a lot of that pressure and it allows you to be the underdog. And it's a lot easier. I mean, the easiest thing is to be the underdog when you are the odds-on favorite. Because like, it's, like a, it's like gaslighting yourself in a way. Um, and I think that, 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 that opens things up for you not to have to live up to an expectation. So it's, it's, yes, I think that you can do well without the chip on your shoulder. And I also think it's maybe less about a chip on your shoulder and more about removing pressure. I think you're spot on, Brad. I, you know, I don't have to add anything there because like, I think what it is, is it's all the story in our head. We're telling us to get the right motivational mix. And when you've been an elite athlete for a while, you figure out what gets you fired up. As Brad alluded to, I mean, there's a whole psychological theory in sports psychology called the individual zone of optimal functioning, which generally says like we all have different combinations of like emotions we need to feel to be in like that optimum zone, right? And that tying back to what we just talked about might come from like what worked as a kid and what environment you were in and whether you like had to get angry or, you know, play out of joy or what have you. And you just kind of figure out that, that, that optimal um, zone. I think the other thing that comes to mind here is generally when we get in these spots, we say things like no one thought we could do it to take that pressure off. But what it also does is it allows us to shift our motivational well a little bit from like, protect and defend which tends to put us in like avoid make making mistakes mode right if we're defending something we go into 
You know, it's the prevent defense of football. Just don't let them score. Just don't screw this up. Just don't mess, mess this up. This is our championship. Like, just don't mess it up. And generally, we don't perform as well out of that kind of mindset. But if we switch that mindset to some, some internal storytelling, it puts us in that, like, approach motivation, which is, you know, I'm striving for this. Like, this is a challenge I'm going to take on. These people don't think we're going to be able to do it. Like, so I can, like, take on this challenge, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's all this kind of mix here. But the caveat I'd add at the end is... I think this, I, I think you can go too far, right? And um, the example I, I'll use, although it worked for him, is like Michael Jordan. He made everything personal, right? He had a chip on everything, everybody. My, one of my favorite stories is when they were playing the Seattle Supersonics um, in the NBA championships. He, he He's at a restaurant the day or two before the game, and George Carl is there, the coach of the Sonics. And George Carl doesn't say hi to Jordan. Jordan turned that in his in his mind as like this huge disrespect. I'm going to show this guy, this guy. And you know, you listen to George Carl interviews. You talk to him like I did a couple of years ago, and he's like, I I had no intention. Like I didn't know anything about that. Essentially. And what is that? It's the same with the Jordan getting cut from his high school basketball team. He didn't get cut. He got moved down to JV. Or he made the JV team. He didn't make the varsity team as a sophomore, which was kind of normal back then, even for a star. So it's this story. That worked for Michael Jordan. For most of us, I would say 90-something percent of us, it would probably put us in the state where it's like we're making it so personal that instead of motivating, it's like, oh my gosh, myself is on the line. If I don't win this, like I'm not good enough. If I don't show this person, it shows that I'm a failure. So again, going back to that individual zone of optimal functioning, Jordan might have this really weird, unique optimal functioning that wouldn't work for Brad, Steve, or Clay because like we're normal human beings. And it even wouldn't work for some some athletes. To use the the example I used earlier, Sarah Hall, like world-class marathoner, she performed best when she was like, I just feel free, right? I'm not, I'm not no chip on my shoulder. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to make it incredibly personal. Like I'm just free trying to explore my own limits. And she's really freaking good. Giannis, Giannis Antetokounmpo in the NBA to me is like the prime other example, just someone who's still early in his career, but when he's having fun and they're rolling and he's smiling, he's great. When it is uh, trying to put a chip on his shoulder, it's just so contrived and he doesn't play as well. It, it's the old, uh, you know, the kind of I look at it is like, do you, it's the sprinter example, right? You want to figure out how to get put in maximum amount of force. And some people, like for most people, you need to do it kind of relaxed while you're doing it, like ex- experiencing kind of joy. You know, you look at Usain Bolt or some of these other guys, they're having fun, do it. Other people, you know, even other sprinters, they look dead serious and look like they're going to kill somebody on the starting line. And, and they have to exert a little bit more effort. And I think, again, it's, it's finding that balance for yourself. Yeah, I think on that playing sort of playing free, running free approach, I was thinking of the Golden State Warriors too, right? Like Steve Kerr, one of his pillars is all about joy. And you can sort of see it, see the Warriors when they play 
and they're having fun, there's that dynamic high energy basketball. And that has led to, you know, multiple championships. The other thing that makes me think of is this weekend in college football, um, USC lost to Utah and it's the second game they lost in a row. And after the game, their head coach Lincoln Riley basically said, like expectations got too high. We finished last season. We, nobody expected much, much of us last season. We finished on a roll. I don't know how they finished the season, but they like won their last six or seven games. And he's like, this season, everyone's expecting again that we're going to be great. And he's like, every game can't be a championship. Like we're we go into every game. Everyone's like, we have to make the college football playoff. And he's like, there's just way too much pressure on us. And I think the expectations got to be too much. Um, just made me think of again, that the zone of optimal functioning, right? You have, what story are you telling yourself and how does that impact how you're going out and performing? I, I think that's another great example. And the one thing I'd add onto that, and it just made me think of this, is I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the Zen master of basketball coaching, Phil Jackson, coached Jordan to his championships, Kobe Bryant, and you know somewhat Shaq, who are... Again, super competitive guys, especially Bryant Jordan, who kind of had this like, I'm gonna go destroy mentality. But on the on the on the coaching side, they had someone to kind of counterbalance that a little bit, Zen Master. And I think I think that is important. And I think getting to the what you just said about that pressure and expectations is that's where your job as a coach is like to see that in athletes and and to see how to create the right story. And I would argue, you know, the Chiefs, whoever it was, maybe Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, um, or uh, the Aces player, like, I would probably say, like, their coaches or mental skills or someone is, like, helping them frame the right story to get the right motivation, or they know it for themselves. But, like, that's just a great example. And maybe at the college level, like, you know, USC messed up a little bit and not framing some of these competitions so that everyone doesn't feel like a do or die. Because if it does, it's someone's gonna like someone's gonna die during the do or die because like pressure gets everybody. Reminds me of the uh, the equation in Master of Change that your mood at any given point of time is a function of your reality minus your expectations. And if expectations get way ahead of reality, it can lead to a lot of distress or sadness or like restlessness. Um, But the flip side is also true, which is if your expectations are so much lower than reality, you get really content. Uh, But contentment isn't always associated with great performance. And you really kind of want to be in that zone when your expectations are aligned with reality. Or if you're someone that thrives under pressure, Maybe you want the expectations to be a little bit higher than reality. Or if your individual optimal performance zone is someone that struggles with pressure, you probably want it to be a little bit lower, which is the the Travis Kelsey uh, aces, WNBA aces. Like, you know, no one said that we had a chance. They're essentially like contorting the expectation down from what it actually was so that the reality is a little bit better. This is really interesting because it gets me into the other thing I wanted to ask you about the Aces, which is they were repeat champions. And anytime there's a repeat champion, people talk about how hard it is to repeat. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the narrative that it's hard to repeat, but I've always sort of wondered if it's because it's hard to repeat or it's just really hard to win a championship. And I think it gets at this question of sort of, 
is it hard if first of all i'm curious what you guys think about that like is it hard to repeat or it's just hard to win a championship and if it is hard to repeat is it because you're in the crosshairs now and you do have that thing of like every you know everyone expects success or is it because of complacency where it's like what you were just talking about brad like if you have low expectations you just kind of sort of coast so I'll I'll I don't know if there's data and I go to our resident scientist Steve if there is but um I'm just going to go to like basic math and statistics here which is like rare events to do them twice in a row it's hard. So like let's say any given year there's a for the favorite there's I don't know what the odds makers would say a 1 in 12 or 1 in 10 chance of winning a championship. Well, 1 over 10 times 1 over 10 is a really low number. Uh, so this is just like basic stats and probability. So I go on the side of it's very hard to win a championship and it's even harder to win two because you're doing two very hard things consecutively. Now, perhaps, and this is pure like intellectual speculation, but perhaps it is a slightly harder to repeat because your zone of luck, i.e. players not getting injured has doubled. So that would be maybe the one reason that it's actually like you could argue that it is harder to win back to back championships than two championships in three years. Uh, one, because you have one less try and two, because it requires a consecutive p- amount of time where someone's not getting injured. Yeah, I looked I looked around for the data, not surprisingly, and I couldn't find much there. There was a couple studies in the 80s and 90s that didn't have too much meat behind them. Um, but I, I would agree with Brad. And I think, again, I, I think even if we could study it, it's really hard to study because it's a rare, rare, rare occurrence anyways. And I think it comes back to what we just talked about, is repeating is hard because it changes your story a little bit. Unless you're an expert storyteller or editor, you know, I would guess, you know, Travis Kelsey, Aces, whoever, like they're really good at editing their story to make sure that they could repeat Um, for someone else. Like that story might get a little complacency or that story might go the opposite direction and have so much pressure on like, oh my gosh, we can't screw it up. Everybody expects us to win, like blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to be so individual, um, depending on like kind of what your underlying motivators are, right? If your underlying motivator is like, I don't know, exploring your limits and and what have you, then maybe you don't get tired of, of seeing how good you can be and seeing if you can do it again. If your underlying motivator was like, to get the championship once and check it off and, and keep it on your resume. And now you feel like you got the medal or the championship, then maybe you don't have that, that energy to, or that motivation to kind of go at it again in the same uh, ferocity that, that got you there. So I think it comes back to kind of those expectations, those stories we tell your, ourselves and, and how we can manipulate those. So what would you, what, how would you edit it? edit the story, Steve, if your team won a championship, what do you say going to that next season to sort of set expectations? I know you're just saying it's individual, but I'm just curious, like how you would think about editing that story or setting the stakes as a way to try to motivate people to go for a repeat. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, I'm going to use the cop out answer, but it depends entirely on, um, on what you're like the individuals you're trying to work with and like what fires them up. I mean, 
I remember, I'll give you examples from my own life. I remember when I was at the University of Houston and we won the four by 100 meter national championship. After that, like I watched the two sprint coaches, Leroy Burrell and Carl Lewis, I watched them talk about like, this is ours. We're going to own this. Like we're creating a dynasty in our event, our, on this event, et cetera. And that, what does that do? It creates like this idea of like ownership around this thing. And it, you know, for a couple of years there, I, I think we won it maybe twice. And then, um, maybe three times. I can't remember, but we won it several times. And I, I think it worked to a degree, but then like that group of class switched. And I think, you know, for some of them, the next group, they felt like some of that pressure to keep that going. And maybe a different approach would have worked for, for those individuals. So I think it, you, you kind of got to read your team and your audience to understand, like, are we going like, hey, we're creating a dynasty. This is your legacy kind of approach. Or are you going, hey, we're going to reset, forget about last year, turn down the pressure, turn down things. This is a whole new year, whole new group. Like, let's, let's bring things down a notch and just focus on the, the process or whatever, you know, language you want to use there. That sounds right. Makes sense. Do we feel like that sums up our conversation on motivation? Anything else to add? Well, I think the, the, the only thing to add is, um, does any of it matter? Right, Clay, <laughs> based on the text message that you, that you sent oh, me, you, like, you are trying to riff actually, on free will right now? <laughs> are we actually doing anything? Oh uh, God! We can't have my first my first podcast be all about free will and emptiness. People, we're going to lose so many listeners. The Clay Skipper is it effect. all just determined? Is it all just predetermined, Clay? Well, I mean, so what Brad and I are referring to is there's a, there's a story out in the New York Times today about um, a professor named Robert Sapolsky, and he has a new book that's all about. I haven't read the book, but just from reading the summary of the book in the New York times all about whether or not we have free will. Um, Brad, would you like to try to summarize this? I, I, I could try, but I feel like I've been talking a lot. So why don't we hear you try to summarize free will? Why, why we don't have free will. That's a nice, that's a nice, that's a nice cop out. Well, I don't agree with Sapolsky. I saw this, uh, last week, there was a, a review going, I think it was the LA times. And essentially the, the headline of the review was Robert Sapolsky concludes that we don't have free will. And my comment was, well, then he didn't conclude anything. Um, so it's it's a thorny question that had that have bothered philosophers for a very long time. It's related to like the hard problem of consciousness. Um, and Sapolsky would essentially say that everything is predetermined. Uh, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Japan, and therefore you sneeze during this podcast, and I'm a minute late for my coaching client, and so on and so forth. Um, I don't agree with that view. Uh, and I'm going to give all the credit to a neuroscientist and philosopher named Eric Howell, who recently put out a book, Steve, I'm going to have you do the fact check and get the name of the book. I forgot it. I want to say like the world behind the world. It's a very, very dense book. Uh, Included it in one of my reading lists and included it and then said, don't read this book unless you're in for a very dense book because it, it involves a lot of math. But what it did for me is he has this just super elegant hypothesis. I'm going to do my best to explain it. That essentially says that we both have free will and we don't. 
in we have free will at the the level of making a decision in the moment. Like I can decide if I'm just going to go off the rails and drop f bombs or not, and I can make that decision. But I can't like say that it's just myself that got me here to you, Clay. Like the universe conspired for this to happen. And Howell uses math and complexity theory to essentially say that at lower levels. So like the classical argument in favor of determinism, no free will, is like at lower levels, things conspire and they get to higher levels and then they determine the next level. And what Howell says is based on complexity theory is the decisions that you make at high levels can reorder the lower levels. So the example here is a very simplistic example, is you could have all of these genes that are biasing you towards hypertension, high blood pressure. And those genes array and affect your biology in a certain manner to get you to hypertension. But if you make the decision then to take a medication or to exercise, a free will choice, then those lower level things reorder. Like there's multiple combinations. So you might be stuck with these six variations of genes, but then the choices that you make they have an effect on how those genes come together, which then creates something new. Uh, so this is like emergent consciousness. And it essentially says that it's not only bottom-up influencing, but top-down influencing occurs too. And I think it's very similar to the question of like, do we have a self or don't we have a self? And I think the answer is yes. Like, we are both always changing and completely interdependent with everything around us. And when we are at a red light and it turns green, there is a self there that decides to hit go. And I think the same thing is true with free will. There's all this bottom-up stuff that determines how we act, what we say, who we're with. But then the decisions that we make in those moments can rearrange the bottom-up stuff. So I don't agree with Sapolsky. I do think that we have more free will than what a hardcore a uh, predetermined person would say. Steve's got nothing. <laughs> just over there shrugging. Is that, a, is, that a, is that a mic drop because it was so <laughs> profound and elegant or because it made no sense? I, I'm just here to talk about sports, <laughs> Travis Kelsey, and maybe Taylor Swift. So I, I, I don't know. I have no thoughts or opinions. I know when to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, Let so. it be known that on the third podcast I was on, we got to, do we have a self or not? I just, this very quickly got to some deep, deep existentialism. I'm glad my philosophy minor in college is coming in handy. But I think that the free will is just like another example of um, just way too much of a focus on dual thinking, like this or that. You know, we either have free will or we don't when I think the answer is like, yes, like we both have free will and we don't have free will. We both have a self and we don't have a self. And it kind of like depends on the level of analysis. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's about holding both of these things at the at the same time. I think that's probably true. I'm, I'm glad you concluded that because or else our discussion on shifting motivation and, you know, all of that would have been worthless. So thanks for Brad for saving me and my knowledge with his wonderful uh, non-duality there. Well, there's another philosophical aphorism that essentially says, we'll never know if we have free will, but we should live as if we do. Uh, and I also think that like, when you have an unanswerable question, then you should 
live as if the answer is the one that motivates you and gives you reason to, to keep going. Um, and then I think that there's like our own empirical experience of life and our empirical experience is very much that we do have free will. Like right now I have a cup of coffee in my hand and you don't know if I'm going to drink it or not. Steve doesn't know. I have no idea. I'm going to choose to take a sip. So that choice, Sapolsky might say, I'd was predetermined on based on the, the dopamine in my brain and all these things. However, what I would say is no, like I make a choice and then as a result of taking a sip, I get all kinds of new neurochemistry in my brain. And both of those things are true at the same time, I think. I think the coffee cup invited action based on ecological psychology. So, you know, that's all I'm saying. Well, I was going to say, I feel like we should end it there, but I'm not really ending it because I have no free will. But maybe we, maybe we will just say that it ends there before we get too deep into a spiral that we can't ever see our way out of. Ooh, I like that. It, it ends there. Uh, yeah, I think that we have free will. I think that Sapolsky is, is wrong about this. You also can't exist in a society. Like, there's no accountability if, if there's no free will. And then how do you, it just goes into anarchy. Well, yeah, but I've been on the other side of this, like as, a, as an author trying to write a book. And um, our, our friend Adam Alter once told me this, which is like, sometimes you have to write a book at a 10, even if you're truly a six or a seven. So I don't know where Sapolsky actually stands. My guess is he's closer to a six or a seven, meaning like his confidence and faith that we don't have free will as a six or a seven, but you write a book as a 10 so that all the newspapers cover it. And I think that the good that Sapolsky's book would do is you look at the criminal justice system or you look at people with mental illness. Um, and I think that it can make us a lot more compassionate towards people. Fetal alcohol syndrome is another great example. Whether or not it's free will, no kid decided that their parent was going to get drunk while they were in utero or use substances that, that are not are counterindicated to pregnancy. And I think if we step back and we say, hey, this person's decision at age 19 or 17 traces back to a long litany of things that they had no say in. Is, is there lead in the water? Then I think it's actually a really good argument. But I think if you play it all the way, then individual responsibility goes away altogether and you can cheat on your spouse, dope in sports, uh, kill a bunch of people for fun and say, well, it's not me making these choices. And I think that any living person that has an empirical experience of being a self would call bullshit on that. Mic drop. I think that was very well put, very eloquently said. It's what I do. Steve, the scientist, Brad, the philosopher, Clay. Someone does it. I don't know if you do it. There's no self, but someone it's, does it. Philosophy is happening, Clay. This in, in Clay, Clay, the, the questioner. All right, Clay. Well, how are you going to sign us off? It's the new name of the Clay podcast. The questioner. I thought the new name of the podcast should be the, the individual op. Wait, the, no. What is it, Steve? The optimal zone of individual motivation. It sounds like a Tim Ferriss uh, sponsorship. This is brought to you by the optimal zone of innovation. Motivation, innovation, all of it. <laughs> Sign us off, Clay. Okay, fine. I'll just say it. You know, this is this wraps first episode of Philosophy is happening. And we will we will be excited to see you guys again at the same time next week. We hope you have a great week. Stay motivated. Do things of your own accord through your free will. And we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>